You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take our stand with episode seven, The Walk. Written by Owen King and directed by Vincenzo Natale. Like I said in the last podcast, if Tom was in it, we call it The Moonwalk. But he wasn't in it, so we can call it The Walking Dead because it felt like when Mother Abigail said, you guys are tasked with going to Vegas with nothing but the clothes on your back. You're basically The Walking Dead. There were some Walking Dead feels to this as well. The close-up shots on dead bodies that were former plague victims, which Mm -hmm. we hadn't seen in a while. I really liked the overall directing by Natalia, and I kind of thought that I would. IMDb is at a 7, a little bit lower. Rotten Tomatoes at a 60%. They hold around the same. And overall, the critics enjoy this episode as well. One review says, The stand picks up the pace significantly in a crucial episode directed with flair and dread by Vincenzo Natale. There are still some odd changes to the source material, but it has more tension and momentum than the series' mid-season sag. But another review really pointed out what I was feeling. It said this works well because it manages to pull these character and thematic moments together in an episode that is also captivating, bolstered by some gorgeous cinematography capturing the quartet's walk west. Compared to what's come before, it's light plot-wise, yet the emotional stakes of what's unfolding on screen couldn't be higher. Whether humanity can get out of its own way, whether it can come together instead of tearing itself apart, that's the real question. The Walk succeeds as an episode because it buttresses these head-on discussions with several hard-earned character moments that bring the importance of this idea home. Giving it the space that we can just basically follow this journey, this group of characters, in a linear fashion from start to finish as they go on their walk. I wish there was more of that. It reminds me that there wasn't earlier on establishing the relationship, the banter between Stu and Glenn, Ray actually being a character because Ray is on this walk and we really know nothing about her. The feel of the group when they come across Harold, the feel of the group when Stu is the one to fall. I mean, these things have so much more weight when we have the fullness of the character arcs behind them. And of course, we don't from the entire season, but they have done some work in the past few episodes that I think makes it a lot more effective. I agree. The cinematography that was captured was beautiful. Probably one of the more beautiful episodes of this series. Thank you, Natalie. And I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to actually give us some character development, some character storylines. Again, thank you, Natalie. But in many circumstances, too little, too late, unfortunately. Could they have had him in earlier in the season? <laughs> I mean, really? The fall of Harold was so much more impactful Because, as we've said in the past, the show has been mainly revolved around Harold. We know most about his character. When Stu falls, it was impactful for me because I know the story and because we do like this character. They've done enough to make us feel like we like him. But does it hold, does it carry that much weight? He's not as pivotal in this storyline or in this rendition of this storyline as in others. Yeah, you have the flip of these characters on both sides, right? So... Harold is the one we've been most attached to being pulled over to the dark side. He's lost and the torch gets passed on to Nadine. Of course, the rest of the episode is then about her and her introduction to Flag. I do think they have failed in the proper development of her character, not only here, but in every rendition, just most especially here. But then on the good side, you have Stu, who's supposed to really be our main protagonist. And as you mentioned, 
we can bring that in because of our former knowledge of Stu. I think they've done a really poor job of giving him enough moments and character pieces here, but we do still like him. And once he falls, then passing the torch on to our second, and that's Larry. And Larry's going to be the new leader and bring the group the rest of the way home to Vegas. I had this feeling, and it's understandable, Clatchers who know me will giggle because this will be with any movie or TV show. I found myself during those stew scenes more worried about the dog, but again, you giggle because that's me in everything, and I'm more worried when an animal gets hurt. But in this case, even more. I was just happy the dog got across and didn't hurt himself. I mean, the dog is a key character in this story every single time. We maybe should have actually seen a little bit more. There was a former part of his storyline where, yes, Glenn first found him in New Hampshire before they left. But Mm -hmm. because they were all riding in motorcycles, they couldn't find a way to take him. So very sadly, Glenn decided to leave him there. They get to Boulder, some time goes by, and all of a sudden he shows up on Stu's doorstep one day in a complete state. And Stu is going, what's going on? Is it Mother Abigail? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, it's not bad news. It's good, but I can't believe it. Stu, Kojak is here. <laughs> and he'd traveled halfway across the country on his own. That's amazing. Was beat up, had had a run-in with Flags Wolves that we hear a little bit about where they'd attacked him. He's got a lot of injuries that Dick Ellis needs to treat and is sort of run down, but they nurse him back to health and he comes back to pretty much his full self by the time they set out on this walk. And now he's going to be critical here in this journey. We see by the end, despite Glenn's upset, Kojak won't leave Stu. We say this every episode, but I think it's worth explaining why we're feeling this way and what you're missing out on. Yeah, Big Steve, his name in his former life. I do think they managed to create a real sense of tension. Even if you haven't seen the 94, you know something's coming from the minute they get to this ravine. Natalie just having the patience to move it slowly, create that sense of tension. They're going down the first side. Is something going to happen? They're going up the second side. Mm-hmm. By the time Stu falls, and you really feel him breaking his leg, Larry having to reset it. They don't shy away from that. By the time the rest of the group leaves, there's a real sense of dread and hopelessness. I mean, what is Stu going to do? He's, he's stuck here. Yeah, sacrificing himself. Those parts were done very well. This whole episode was done very well. I think our complaints are more due to the setup not being there. And the Mother Abigail portion, because in a big way, this episode comes back to the split. Mother Abigail and her group, her pawns, as they say, and Flag and his group, in which case I'm a a little frustrated about the Nadine problem. But we're going to talk about all of that. In fact, we will give you some more information on Franny from the books. Doesn't get a lot to do here. Glenn's view on the walk, because Jason, you asked, what is the point of this? Why do they need to go with only the clothes on their back? They can't have any food, blah, blah, blah. So I think his little speech illuminates that. Again, you've got Greg Kinnear. I don't know why they're walking through this gorgeous scenery. You're getting these panning shots. Why can't you have him doing a little speech about that? But okay, fine. And in our closer look later on, we'll talk about Mother and Nadine. Let's slow it down for one minute and review the music notes. First, we had I Promise by Radiohead as the gang crosses Utah. It is playing over these zoomed out shots we discussed. I think it was a good choice. I Put a Spell on You, a little bit on the nose as Nadine leaves the desert coming (laughs) over to Flag. And at the end credits, You Must Have Been a Beautiful Baby, Bing Crosby. Oh, you're missing one. What's that? Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? Oh my goodness, they played it, Jay. They played the full song. Well, basically. They had the guts to do it, and it's it a good sounds song. like a real song. Yeah. 
I thought we were just going to get gypped again and have it be that little bit of sound when mm-hmm. they get out of the limo, but then they walk into the hotel. And there it is, booming. Yes. That's on purpose. Love it. The other thing I love, and this brings us into our plot, our crow's eye view, is the cold open. A real staple of shows nowadays, but I don't think we've gotten it with the stand this time until this episode. I really think I might have liked a couple of episodes with just a cold open short clip of the trash can man rather than the kind of bizarre introduction we got last time. Oh, that would be nice. So that by the time we meet him fully, we have some background to go on. Mm -hmm. What he's been up to, how weird he is. Being in the desert, maybe getting some flashbacks of his past. I think you absolutely could have done that. And this is good evidence of that because we open up here with trash descending into this underground storage so that he can cut the top off a nuclear warhead. Can you do that? No idea. Will it still work? (laughs) I would Google it, but I don't want to get uh, put on a red list. Presumably, this is why the radiation levels would be super high either way. But I think the fact that he did cut it open contributes to that. He knows enough to have that Geiger counter strapped to the back, which monitors it. But the radiation is going up to high. I don't think he cares. He is on a mission to do what Flag has told him. And even if that means getting radiation poisoning along the way, (laughs) he's going to do it. And we get his really subtle call out. You could hardly hear him say it, but his infamous lines from the book, bumpty bump. I mean, we must hear Sibola bumpty bumpty bump 50 times in the novel. And that's it. That's the end of the cold open. Perfect. As we move along, we're going to split these scenes into the dark side and the light side. So first we'll talk about Harold and Nadine leaving Boulder. We flash back to them pushing the detonator together and watching the bomb explode in town from the amphitheater. We didn't even discuss that that's where they're doing it, the place where Teddy had his dreams of constructing a movie theater for the town. It's Mm -hmm. kind of symbolically fitting. There's an interaction where Harold tells Nadine they don't touch each other anymore. They're done now. Flag got what he wanted. Soon there won't be any more free zone at all. He's going to get a great woman once they get to Vegas. And Nadine, well, she'll be stuck with Flag. Yeah, to me, this felt like a hurt child lashing out, emotionally hurt. He's not wrong, though. Well. If I was you, I'd be shaking in my shoes. Well, for sure. Uh, They have made, and we'll talk about this more as we go along, this weird change in several ways to Nadine. We've talked before how we don't get as much early on feeling like there is goodness to Nadine and she's struggling with the conflict of she feels drawn to Flag and yet she's also repulsed by him and scared of him and a bit... It is her choice, but it's not really her choice. They make it more definitively her choice. She is almost solely drawn to him. We get very little of that fear and disgust. In fact, when it comes to their sex scene later on, it's almost romantic in the beginning. It's very odd. And while it did start out where Nadine thinks this is beautiful and then descend, it was a lot darker in the story. And thus the impact of what was essentially a rape. (laughs) I don't even know what you call that when it's a supernatural, supernatural demonic being, Mm. but was a lot larger. I mean, Nadine virtually turned catatonic. There was nothing of her left afterwards. So they do a version of that here, but everything's a little less extreme and she doesn't seem particularly frightful to leave. She's eager to throw Harold off. We see that in the next scenes. As they ride through the mountains, there's snow on the ground. I think that's a tip off that the seasons are changing. Weather is going to be a factor where they are in Boulder. And Nadine starts to speed up on her bike, forcing Harold to match her. As they come around a bend, she suddenly breaks, leaving him to veer into the barrier, hitting it hard and flying off his bike. 
He's catapulted and lands on a tree far below where he's impaled on a branch. Nadine says, he never would have let you live, Harold. He needs me. You were never meant to be a part of that. She tells him she won't help him up, but he can end it quickly if he's brave. He shoots his gun at her as she turns and rides off, leaving Harold alone. Again, it's probably like beating a dead horse at this point, but because there are some of Harold's last scenes, Owen Teague, the way he plays, completely distraught. He's really losing it as he's yelling at her. His eyes are bugging out of his head. And then the ultimate fear, pain, realization that he is utterly alone. He's going to die alone and in pain. They have a couple of scenes, which I think is smart of him lying there dying. He pulls out a notebook. The vultures watch, just waiting for him. He finishes the note and then shoots himself. Do you think Nadine would have done that to him if he didn't have his little tantrum before they left? Yes. Okay. This was always part of the plan. And again, they make it seem more like her decision here to throw him off versus in the books, she kind of knew it was coming at some point that Harold wasn't a part of the bigger picture, but not exactly when or what would happen to him. I think there was an oil slick on the road. Whatever it was, you have the clear description that it's flag causing it to happen. And Nadine sees it and is sort of like, okay, I guess that was the moment I've got to go on. It feels almost like her murder here. And that's a turning point because the Nadine from the books, the entire way when she's grappling with her conflict, is saying murder was the worst thing. That was something she couldn't condone even for Joe. She's talking about caring for Joe. Had he killed Larry when he ran at him with a knife, she would have had to leave him. Because there's been so much death in this world that you couldn't allow one more. And that's a line she won't cross for herself either. So I think that's a real symbol that she has crossed it. And maybe that should have had more weight here. Well, at this point, she's had three key moments now that she's decided to go dark. One was shooting and killing Teddy. Mm -hmm. Two was planting the bomb, leaving Larry, going up and uh, pressing the button. In between those, you had the moment where she tried to escape with a desperate attempt to sleep with it. I think that was really the pivotal thing. Yeah. And then this one, essentially killing Harold. Yeah, and it's right after that that she's driving through the desert alone that she senses flag. So it does feel like there's no going back now. She gets off the bike and follows a trail of white rose petals that turn into a red carpet walk, suddenly finding herself in his hotel room. And this is the beginning of what he's showing her, the glamours that Nadine sees so that he can get her to do what he wants versus what's happening in reality. And Mm. I enjoy that. I think that's their version of she can't see the truth or she would go catatonic. It would result like it did the previous time. So instead, he's trying to show her something that's pleasing. He is being romantic. He's in a hotel room with a rose on. There's a nice bed with silk sheets. You know, this is going to be a pleasant moment. (laughs) She starts to lose focus momentarily and sees the sand at her feet, but he gets her back. Yeah, he tells her Harold was very loyal, but his purpose is served. He was never meant to ascend to Olympus and live among the gods like you. You know, this is a, a grand position she has. She held up her end and kept herself pure. It's at that moment that you see she's now wearing a white nightdress to demonstrate that. You get to be my wife. But then we shift again. We see them having sex and she's still in the desert. And she becomes terrified, realizing and saying out loud, something's not right. And his image turns into a burnt demon. Visually, the way they did this in the 94 was wonky. (laughs) His face turns into this demon-like creature, but you still get more of the depiction of how horrible and brutal this is. 
in the books, it talks about the traumatic experience and what happens later when her soul is essentially gone. She's sitting there. She doesn't speak. She doesn't move. And Flag says, if she was also catatonic, what did that matter? She was the perfect incubator. She would breed his son, and then she could die with her purpose served. After all, it was what she was there for, right? Hmm. Uses everybody. In this version, we can't blame Vincenzo for what you were saying was lacking. He shows it. Oh, that he did his best demon. to bring it all back around here. In the old days, they would sit on that scene, and they would show her struggling, starting to panic and tr- trying to get away, and he won't let her. Mm-hmm. Which is what we saw in the 94 But with the PC era we're in now, Mm -hmm. what they had to do is they had to walk a very thin line and just show, oh, it's a demon, and then then cut away. It would have been a news day today, how the stand is so insensitive. To show a rape, but this has been done on screen before. And do you get the sense that she lost control in that moment and that he brutalized her and turned into a demon and she turned cold? A little bit. Just because we know what's supposed to be happening when she says, this isn't right. Because that is a big conclusion. This supernatural stuff, on the Mother Abigail side, we'll talk about it when we get there. And on the flag side, disposing of Harold so easily, what he does to Nadine, what happens to her afterwards. The facade is starting to It's the real stamp of what flag is like, and you are terrified. Even visually, yeah, it was a little corny, but I liked it. Throughout her interactions in the 94 with flag, Nadine would start to get more and more white. I remember that, even when she was still in Boulder. In her dark black hair. Yep. And after this scene, it went all white. Pure snow white. Now, she walks out here, and it's platinum bombshell blonde instead, because that's... What she sees. The facade. But it doesn't show you the terror. You know, it's, it's their version of it, I guess. It doesn't show you the real trauma that she went through, which definitely would have been more impactful, because if we saw it, if the camera sat on that, and we actually got that... that feeling that the PC world doesn't like right now, that uncomfortable feeling. Then the next scene when she's in bliss, it would mean so much more because we see, oh man, it snapped. She is a shell of herself. Yeah. She's a shell for his seed, basically. I I just want to remind you, do you remember how much hate, not we got, but how much hate the internet got and how angry some of our clatchers were in Game of Thrones? Yes, and the magicians as well. And even discussing it brings hate down on us, but it's such a key point of this story. It has to be talked about. And I do like, as you said, Natalie has a brief period of time here. He didn't get to do any of that setup beforehand. It's really being fit all into one episode. I enjoy his twist on it, how she does walk out. You can tell she's dazed. She's in a glamour world as she walks out of the desert to Flag's car in this beautiful white dress, her blonde hair. If it was the magician, she took or drank some of the bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, but the indications are there. She grabs her stomach as she feels something. You know, the, the pregnancy has begun. The pain. And we will come back to that a little more later on because there's going to be a run-in in Vegas. Also something kind of interesting that we didn't get to see before with her confronting Larry. But we're going to shift gears here to talk about our group on their walk. We start the boulder scenes with Larry going to the hall where all the injured are being treated in a makeshift hospital, the results of the explosion. Glenn tells him Franny is okay, just a little banged up, but the baby is all right. We hear Larry helped stop the fire from spreading any further. And while they know Harold built the bomb, Larry's upset thinking it was Nadine who put it in the house, feeling very responsible. Nadine. Fuck, man. Hello, kicking dope sucked. 
You think there's anything left of Nick to bury? I mean, we gotta bury something, right? We'll bury something. Well, he was her favorite. If she doesn't wake up, she'd never have to know. It might be a blessing. Meanwhile, Mother Abigail wakes in her bed and tells Ray to gather everyone to hear her message. Okay, here we go. She says, I have sinned greatly, sinned in pride. I forgot I was not the potter, but the clay. I thought Nick was the one to lead you, but the Lord saw fit to take Nick home. And that means it's you, Stu Redman, who must lead now. West to the dark man's stronghold. You are to leave now, today, on foot. You are to take no food and no water, just the clothes on your back. One of you will not see the end of this journey. But God has not seen fit to show me who falls. And you, Franny, you are not to go. There's bitter days ahead, death and terror, betrayal and tears. And not all of you will live through them. And the dark man grows stronger every day, and I know you can feel it. And soon he'll come to destroy all who stand against him. His kingdom's in the West, and it is there you must go and make your stand. This, this is, is what, what God, God wants from you. from you. And then she passes. We think. They don't show that definitively. Kind of weird. But you get the idea she returned just to deliver this message. If I was one of the four in there, I really would have been like, hold up, hold up. What do you mean... No food, no water. Mm-hmm. I would be bitching the whole time. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it still doesn't make sense to me. During the show, I said that out loud. Why? Why make them suffer like that? And you're like, you'll understand. No, I still don't understand. I mean, you're going to understand, I think, when I come to that thing they didn't show us. Okay. Let's blend in a little bit. But there's actually a point I want to talk about before we get to that. Because it, it was a voice for you and people who felt like you in the books. And it was important. Here we just get this scene between Stu and Franny when they're discussing the journey. You know, he's thinking they average 25 to 30 miles a day. They could make it there by the end of February, meaning he's going to miss the birth of the baby. That's a week before the baby's due. Uh, Franny, while upset, is very calm and encouraging him. You know, she believes, she thinks mother did speak for God and thus they need to listen. She is losing her shit at this point in the books, okay? In the explosion, she was seriously injured. She had a horrible whiplash, a sprained back, and a broken foot. She couldn't even move, and she was in tons of pain. So when Mother told them to gather them, they really had to help her get into the room. And Mother's telling them the same thing, that she had sinned in pride. She also says, electric lights ain't the answer, Stu Redman. CB radio ain't it either, Ralph Brentner. Sociology won't end it, Glenn Bateman. And doing penance for a life that's long since a closed book won't stop it from coming, Larry Underwood. Nor will your boy child, Fran Goldsmith. God didn't bring you folks together to make a community. He brought you here only to send you further on, on a quest. And Fran says, what are you saying? 
that the four of them are just supposed to deliver themselves into his hands, the heart and soul of the free zone, I won't see them sacrificed to your killer god. Fuck him. Millions, maybe billions died in the plague. We don't even know if the children will live. Isn't he done yet? Does it just have to go on and on? He's no god. He's a demon and you're his witch. They should have put that in there. Right? Wow. What a beautiful Franny moment. And that is what I would have said. Exactly. So she's speaking for all the people who are feeling that way in that moment, saying, this is bullshit. Why aren't any of you saying it's bullshit? And now you want to take my man, Stu, and leave me alone with this baby that might not even survive? I'm done. He's not going. (laughs) Stu is not going. And what she does then is she touches Franny and heals her injuries. Within a second, all of her pain is gone. She bends over. She can touch her toes. She's looking, and Stu's like, what are you doing? And she says, it's healed. All the pain is gone. And then she turns to Mother, and she says, is this a bribe? (laughs) And Mother says, no, God doesn't do bribes. He sends signs, and he lets you interpret them as he will. Basically, we have power on our side, too. I know what you're all thinking. These elaborate, flashy things that the dark side can do. We're asking so much of you and yet nothing in return. Here's a little sign for you that you need to put your faith in this and have the courage to stand up for what we need to do here. And she's not happy. She's still very sad, but reluctantly she agrees. They have no choice. They yeah. have to go along with this because if they don't, Flag's just going to come after the winter's over and wipe out the rest of their community anyway. They should have put this in. So you're like, okay, it sucks. And you know, in part, it's going to be a sacrificial journey and not everyone's going to survive, but... If it's three or four of them that have to die, or maybe even just one, we don't know, to possibly make a stand, to possibly defeat him, to at least fight back. Otherwise, they're all going to be dead anyway. That's the point of this story, right? And she finishes it by saying, you always have a choice, Fran. That's God's way, and it always will be. Your will is still free, but this is what God wants of you. That's where that line comes in in the book. And I don't know, I thought that was just the perfect way to do it, and they have moments like that sprinkled in where... You get frustrated, you get upset, and then you go, okay, but I get it. This version is trying so hard to steer away from the spiritual aspects Mm. because they didn't want to be pinned down to stereotypes and tropes from last time that they have all but removed Mother Abigail. You don't understand her story, her background, her faith in her God. When she's saying she sinned here, you're going, you did? Because I haven't seen anything. I would have been like, yeah, you did sin. You left us by ourselves. Thanks. Because you don't know any of that. And then she comes back just to deliver this message and everyone just goes, okay. Yeah, we should have left you out there. (laughs) I mean, you're really missing because they've taken this sharp turn. They've turned into Nowhereville. I feel like it leaves you quite lost on a story that you got to face it creators of this adaptation is a good versus evil story. Yeah. You can't back down from that. That little bit that you just spoke about the book added so much to that scene. All I remember from last night watching the show, she said, how long is this going to take you? Mm -hmm. And me saying out loud, uh, about one episode, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Get all the way over there on foot. One episode, probably. Yeah, I mean, the walk was clearly longer than that, too, and we have more when it comes to that. But back to this episode, there is also a brief back and forth that I thought was interesting because it's different from last time, that Stu actually wants justice. 
here, perhaps even vengeance upon Harold, because it's not as much Larry who's formed this close relationship that's broken. We do get some of that later, but again, confused because of the way they've tried to change things. It's really Stu who's been growing to kind of like Harold and ignoring Fran's warnings about him. And so now he feels regretful, responsible. I should have listened to you. And if I run into him, uh, who knows what's going to happen? And Franny's trying to tell him, that's not your purpose here. You know, mother didn't say anything about him because that's just going to sidetrack you. Basically, swear you'll come back to me because God can't run all of it. And she said that in the books as well. He promises to try. He actually swears on the site where they lost Nick in the explosion. That he'll do everything he can to come back to her. And you have to wonder, did that influence things later on was it always Stu who was meant to fall we don't know mother saw someone but she didn't know who here's the deal so much so much i knew it was going to really culminate as the story ramped up and that's and chris is just giving you surface level of what the book provides that this episode doesn't Mm -hmm. i'm convinced the double d's should have done this because we know the double d's can't write and direct their own stories but they're really good at adaptations They did so well. You have to, as many problems as we had with them, their trouble started when they lost their source material. When they had it, they were kings of adaptation, truly. And if by some weird chance you don't know by now who the double Ds are, we're talking about David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who did Game of Thrones. But also, there's been people who've adapted King's works before as well, and Natalie's one of them. Uh, Okay, so he did In the Tall Grass, which I'm not very fond of. But still, he did a pretty good job with it, and he's done some other things in the past we've talked about, such as Cube, one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been others who have found ways. One of our favorites. I so wish that Flanagan had been a part of this production. I think he would have killed it. I think Boone and Cavill are good, but they needed somebody else who had this idea of how to tackle the more difficult stuff, the internal journeys of the characters, which Flanagan is brilliant at the bigger picture that Natalie's really good with. Maybe they all needed to be part of this from the beginning. I don't know. You take Netflix money and Netflix time frames, meaning you don't have any. What about HBO? Take your time. Some HBO money. Yeah, HBO. Sure. They're not afraid to run it three seasons. Look at Westworld. How much money have they thrown at that? Anyway, we're getting carried away here. Fuck it. Let's come back to Laurie says goodbye to Joe. Critically not taking his guitar, as he did in the past versions, leaving it with Joe to watch over. That's a tender moment. And that's what killed them, because if he reached out with his guitar for Stu to, to grab on his way up, we would have had a oh, clever. much different tone clever to this episode. <laughs> uh, Franny takes a photo of the four of them. I feel like this must have significance, but I can't quite pinpoint what it is. We have the four that are going on the journey. Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ray, plus Kojak, by the Boulder City sign. And they're really showing the sign at first. You know, built in 1871, elevation 5430. What's the point of this scene? Is there foreshadowing here? Otherwise, why are we including it? This big deal about Glenn, who's not taking the camera, is for Franny. I don't know. I'm a little lost, but I'm wondering if that's going to have more meaning afterwards. Hmm. Glatchers, if you have any thoughts on that, please let me know. Hey, Clatchers. Every so often, we're going to do a different type of segment. It's called Promo Swap. This is a way for podcasts such as ourselves to get our name out to other listeners who might be interested. What we'll be doing is 
pairing ourselves with like-minded podcasts. On their end, they're going to tell their listeners about us. And on our end, we're going to tell you guys about them. So this week, we want to tell you about our friends over at Adult Beverage Film Podcast. Like having a drink and talking films? Yup. The Adult Beverage Film Podcast is your go-to podcast. Join the conversation and listen to film industry producers, actors, directors, writers, share all of their experiences in the film industry. Expand your mind into films you've already seen. Plus, find new films to watch in the future. Visit adultbeverage.net or go to your favorite podcast platform and listen to Adult Beverage Film Podcast episodes today. But then they start out, and here comes Jay. They haven't brought anything with them, but Stu thinks they can get food from a local grocery store. They couldn't take anything, but obviously they still need to live so they can scavenge for food and water along the way, just not any weapons. And Glenn says, oh, you know, power's not in the book, it's in the interpretation. The interpretation of that message never said we couldn't pick it up as we go along. They also hope that Ray can point out where there's fresh water that won't give them Giardia. Very funny. She's offended that the group just assumes, stereotyping her, that she'll know what to look for. But of course she does. You know, as much as we don't know about Ray and the fact that she's coming on this walk and we're like, oh, okay, she wasn't part of the five, but now she's important. Since we lost Nick and Franny can't go. But this actress is amazing. And I wish they'd given her more. Her lines, her acting. I've had to watch this episode a few times to get the clips, to get screenshots for our cover photo, especially at the end when they see Nadine. She's the only one really acting visually, face-wise. Harold. Oh, you mean at the hotel. At but the also end end. when they see Harold and she's going, Larry, what's the matter with you? Oh, yeah, that too. He yeah. was a murderer. Yeah, why didn't we? When we were in Boulder and we kept seeing she's the one on really on Mother Abigail's side of she's a worshiper. She's devoted to her. Mm -hmm. It's important to have somebody like that on this journey. You've got somebody like Glenn who's trying to be rational. He's fighting the idea a little bit of this being a religious journey, but he can't deny white magic exists. Somebody like Stu who's just going to keep calm and hold it all together. You have all the personality types, and you have their quirks. You have Stu calling Glenn Baldy and Mm -hmm. Glenn calling him East Texas, Larry being a little bit petulant. I hate to sound like a broken record. They're doing what they can here in this episode. Mm -hmm. It's just that track hasn't been laid. How about the fact that they're fighting for um, a town or the good people? We know nothing of them, Mm -hmm. so it means nothing to us. The struggle to start this society that we barely saw. Season one should have been what people did right before and right after. Yeah, Captain Trips. Them going to Boulder. Then season two should have been Boulder and Vegas as they build. And we get to know this everybody. Is this is the book, oh, it is? sweetie. Yep. On the border. And you start introducing it, but you don't have much of Vegas. It's more about society rebuilding. And then three is The Stand. Way more about Vegas. Their walk over there, the ultimate showdown. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, while I'm talking a lot, this is just skimming the surface. So if this intrigues you, please remember to stay tuned after we finish our coverage of this adaptation for CKC's book review of The Stand, where we'll get into all of that much more. For sure. And season two should end with Mother Abigail leaving, and it would make much more sense to us after having two seasons of her, getting to know her, getting to love her like everyone else does, and actually having that empathy instead of me just being like, why is she leaving? Yeah, well, so they're shying away from the spiritual aspects, which I don't think you can because that's the crux of the story. But I go back to, if you were afraid of that, why didn't you lean on her humanistic viewpoints? 
her thinking about her childhood and everything she went through growing up, all the yep. struggles she's had, her welcoming them to her home on a farm <laughs> in Hemingford Home, not a retirement community, <laughs> making them a meal so they all feel welcome and at home, a place that's safe. This is why they rally around her, not just because she's a spiritual leader, a prophet that they dreamed of, but somebody that they turned to all throughout this journey, the dreams comforted them they had a direction they had a place to go someone would be waiting and they got there and she was yeah and now she's the heart of boulder as they start it back up again you can have almost all of that and not get into anything religious why didn't you it's a good question one more thing and then i promise i'll stop the rant but i did tell you i was going to give you glenn's speech on this as they're taking their walk they start out we hear they've gone 90 miles and they have 700 to go I think it's Larry that's keeping a book of how many miles they do every day and how many miles they're totaling. And it increases as time goes on. In the beginning, it's very difficult. They talk about how sore they all are, how tired. Glenn's arthritis is really bothering him. That's why he has those pills, by the way. Is there any reason for him to have the pills here other than, I guess, he smokes weed, so he would? What? <laughs> okay. But you get a sense of it's still not easy, even though this is what they've been tasked to do. They wonder if they can make it. But every day they grow a little bit stronger. They think the air is so clean and so fresh. They feel different. And they start talking about what's happening here. And why did we have to go on a walk with no supplies, you know? And Glenn says, what we're doing has all sorts of historical precedent. And I see some perfectly sound psychological and sociological reasons for this walk. I don't know if they're God's reasons, but they make good sense to me. For example, there were several Native American tribes that used to make having a vision an integral part of their manhood right. When it was your time to become a man, you were supposed to go out into the wilderness, unarmed. You were supposed to make a kill and create two songs. You were not supposed to eat. You were supposed to get high, mentally as well as physically, and wait for a vision to come. And eventually, of course, it would. Maybe we were sent to gain strength and holiness through a purging process. The casting away of things is symbolic. You start a cleaning out and begin to empty the vessel. That's physically. He also talks about mentally, the mind being like a battery. How in everyday life, everything you think and do runs off of the battery and takes a charge like accessories, draining it, all these distractions, all this other stuff. But if you unplug and get rid of all those things, the battery can go back to full power. Their minds can be clear. The journey is doing both of those. They ask him, are we changing? He says, yes, I think we are. Hunger is part of it, but not all of it. When you empty the vessel, you empty all the crap floating around in there, the impurities. But will it help us with him? Well, that's what it's meant for, I'm sure. But we'll have to wait and see. You kind of get that it's not just a biblical reference. It's not just 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, although it is. They would not be ready to make the stand they need to if they'd just been magically transported to Vegas. They needed to go through this. They needed to go on the journey to find themselves in the quiet. Mm -hmm. You will find yourself. Mm -hmm. And I like how he said the Native American tribes used to make having a vision an integral part, a uh, not just the Native Americans, um, Spartans used to do that. Oh, many cultures. Well. Yeah, you had rites of passage that you would go through when you started to come into your adulthood. And many of them involved going out separate from the community, not having weapons, having to learn to hunt, to feed yourself, and to, and to commune with nature. And to sit alone with yourself. And who am I to talk? Once we finish this, I'm going to edit, 
and then either listen to a podcast, have a movie on. Like I'm right. never Is within your vessel my own ever thoughts. empty. And he talks about that, that you'd have the TV on, you'd have this and that going. And he says, even if your TV went out for the night, you would still be thinking about the TV shows you're missing. Mm-hmm. And you would go and you'd read a book instead or play a game instead. It's not unless all of that is removed that you start to really clear. Why do we still meditate today? There's a reason these practices are in place. Mm. And this group, with everything they've had to think about, between the plague, their old lives, gathering in Boulder, reforming society, they need a flush. There's no way they can empty out enough to be prepared. I agree with you. And that's why we're telling our Clatchers, next week we will be meeting under the Statue of Liberty. We're going to all do mushrooms and uh, no food. Don't bring food or drink. We're going to find ourselves. Yeah, did Glenn maybe have a chemical they could have used to enhance this process? (laughs) Um, So we don't get that. We get maybe, again, little glimmers. But I think there's ways that Glenn could have talked about that. The group could have discussed it as they're walking along. I do like the quietness of them making this journey and just seeing the visuals in this adaptation, seeing the crows in every scene. Beautiful. Watching them. Watching them, yeah. The dead. We see bodies that have been plucked or eaten because it's been, it's been a while now. Passage of time. And you do get a sense that they're actually getting to know each other because before that, all you got was clips of people in a town not really talking to each other, you know, little tiny conversations. Their bond is growing. This group is bond is growing, yeah. I just wonder if you get a sense of them changing psychologically, spiritually. That is a bit of what I'm missing here because when Stu falls and starts citing Psalm 23, mm-hmm. I shall fear no evil, I'm going, where'd that come from? <laughs> is Stu particularly religious? Right. Does he believe that? Would Larry believe that so strongly? If we'd had this stuff, I could see it. Well, going back to what we were saying before... And what we've said many times, admittedly, if we were going by season by season, and this was season three, book three, mm-hmm. this would have been three episodes long, their journey. Oh, yeah. But not boring. I'm saying mixed in with what's still going on at Boulder, with what's going Vegas. on in Vegas, even like little tiffs. What to- what's Tom doing? Little things they can't that... can't find the food. They do yeah. find water that's not good. There's so much. Plus... There's more after Stu's fall. There's a lot more. Yeah. And I have a feeling we're going to get about five minutes and I'm going to be so pissed. You're, yeah, that's true. This was just the beginning. And I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't say more. But we have two episodes left, the last of which is a coda, meaning we have one to finish what I see as three more huge plot arcs. We're, we're probably only going to get to one of them. Let's go on to two scenes Sorry. that I really like. The one where we find Harold and the one where Stu falls. Maybe two of my favorites. The group comes across Harold's wrecked bike and finds the spot he's been thrown into and the vultures feeding on his body. While Ray protests, Larry goes to clear the birds away and read Harold's note, saying, I followed him halfway across the country. It doesn't matter what the dark man made him do. He's still going to pay the respects to him that he feels he deserves because he did do some goodness in his life. Larry was the big person that received some of that. And while you can't forgive his sins, he can honor some of those good things. Yeah, I understand that, Chris, but did you get that? Did you really get that from... No, because they didn't show us only the tiniest bit of how important Harold's messages were to Larry's journey. At first. But then we got the arch of Larry starting to wonder about him and starting to ask questions about Larry. A couple episodes ago, you know, Larry was starting to see what Harold was really about. So why, at this moment, is he the one to say, 
we should pay him respect. I'm going to go down there. If you had heard all of the intense gratitude, appreciation, respect that Larry had, he wouldn't have made it if he didn't have Harold to follow, to show him the way. Even once Franny tells him what Harold is and he doesn't believe her, and then he goes and investigates to find out for himself because he doesn't want to believe. And he didn't see anything. But in the books, he does. Okay. And he finds it out. And he feels terrible about it. As I said, they're going to confront Stu and the rest about what they found in his manifesto when the bomb goes off. But he sees in Harold what maybe all of these other people didn't, that there was an opportunity for Harold to change. That there were good things that nobody else recognized, and maybe that's a part of the problem. Franny says to herself, when she hears this story from Larry and this different version of it, have I not been giving him credit this whole time? I've been saying it's Stu that led us through this, but Larry's right. Harold did do all of those things. Why didn't we recognize it? Why didn't we recognize what he was contributing to the community? Were we part of this? And then he's going, and also, it was kind of Nadine who seduced him over to the dark side, And he feels a little bit responsible for not seeing that. So you can feel Larry's struggle and that just because Harold is bad, does it mean he's not gray like everyone else? That was going to be my question to you. In this show, this rendition of the show, is it more about his guilt, Mm -hmm. which we saw in the beginning of this episode, that it wasn't just Harold, it was Nadine. And Nadine was making me fall in love with her. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of responsible because maybe if I wasn't blinded by my love for her or my falling for her, maybe I would have seen something too. So maybe he's not to blame. And or that's if I why. had even slept with her like she wanted me to, would it have changed things like you said last time? Yeah, I think he's thinking all those things. They say it over and over in the books. He's a man who's just coming to know himself. I like that we still get that because we need it for Larry's development basically. And I like that we get the story from Harold that sort of sums up everything that's been going on. He talks about the game that they played when they were children to jump off the sand pit. I was too afraid. They jumped from the top of the pit and rolled over and over down, laughing their heads off. I never could get my legs to do it, though. To jump. Everyone called me a pansy and I kept going back to prove myself, but I never did it. I wonder if, just once, I could have convinced myself to do it, if I might not have ended up here. Well, fuck all those bullying assholes. And fuck me for letting myself turn into something even worse. I apologize for the destructive things I've done, but I do not deny that I did them of my own free will. The dark man is real. I let myself be misled. I sign this my final word by a name given to me in Boulder. I couldn't accept it then, but I take it now freely. Hawk. Hawk, what Teddy called him. And we keep saying that. His interactions with him and what happened there was really the last point of possible change for Mm. Harold. And I think this is him recognizing that. So that's done beautifully. And then the group comes to this ravine, this split in the road, where the rock falls apart just as Stu is trying to get back up the other side, sending him tumbling back to the bottom, breaking his leg badly. Larry resets it and they splint it, but he can barely move. So Stu insists they leave him. This was part of Mother's message. One would fall. They all knew what they were signing up for. And the whole trip is based on the idea that Mother knew what she was talking about. 
So if they start to go against that and try to do something different, what are they even doing here, mm. I guess? Stu also convinces Larry to go on and tells him he's in charge now. That was a, a great moment of not only Larry and his changed humanity caring for others more than himself, which is not like it was in the past, not wanting to leave Stu, but also the ongoing conflict he's had the whole book of, I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> People keep trying to put me in this position and I don't have what it takes, but he does. And he's finally able to step up to that and say, I'll take the torch and I'll keep going on. Glenn leaves the rest of his pain pills in a great note telling Stu, by the way, just want to let you know that three or four of these could be fatal. You've got the ability to go out if you want to. These were good scenes. I thought it was a very well done. Love Kojak. I still love Mars and a stew, oh, even though they're not yeah, giving yeah. him enough to work with. I For think sure. what they do, and especially when him and Glenn, because just two great actors, him and Greg Kinnear, when they're sharing a scene, he's trying to explain this to Larry, Stu that is, but Glenn's looking at him just sort of going, I know, I know what you're <laughs> going to say. I know we have to do this without a word. I mean, they're really doing an excellent job portraying that. And as we mentioned, we see the group goes on and realizes they can't find Kojak and Kojak's staying back with Stu. Glenn's going to have a heart attack. What are you doing here? <laughs> and then the three are picked up by Lloyd in a limo. Lloyd dressed in his typical pimp clothing. Of course. Smoking his cigarette. Oh, boy. Right into the... Wolf's den. Wolf's den. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were expected. Of course they were. Flags, crows have been watching them. And now they drive into Vegas. We get some really quick, good visuals. A statue of flag being erected in front of Caesar's. People beaten in the streets, all the screens showing Flag and Nadine. And you kind of also wonder if all of this is really reality because they're doing this bizarre thing where you can kind of hear his voice in the background saying, We're not going to have any whining, <laughs> but it's repeating and ringing out, almost like a trippy effect. I would not want to hear that over and over again. But what's funny is Vegas, when I went to Vegas a few times as a kid, they are known for having repetitive messages. Mm. There's many, but one I'll speak to is the Tropicana. They had the long hallways where they had the moving ground, and they would say, watch your step. You are approaching the end of the walkway. I stayed there. But it was constant, mm -hmm. to the point where your second day there, you're saying it all day to your they family. They do this in Atlantic City, too. Watch the tram car, please. Watch See, the tram car, please. That's horrible. Uh, but every hotel had their repeating things. So it's kind of apropos. But he's got it with every single screen in Vegas. Well, it's like brainwashing propaganda. No Flag is a good family man, you know. Don't bitch. Smiling, <laughs> this statue of him. And then they arrive at the Hotel Inferno. As Nadine comes down the elevator, great shot. She sees herself. The reflection in the elevator is this beautiful woman in a white dress. But the others, I think Ratwoman's in the elevator at this point, are looking at her shocked. And we don't know why yet because we haven't <clears> seen anything else, but they clearly are. It's when she comes down and confronts the group and we see through their eyes what she really looks like, which is a pale, half-dead woman with a demon inside her belly. Yeah. So everyone but her sees it. Mm -hmm. She He's thinks she looks fake, beautiful, radiant. Fake world. Yeah, it's a facade he's been given to she knew the her. truth, she would break. As I said, very interesting that we're actually going to get her seeing Larry here, which we did not in any of the previous adaptations. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's kind of exciting. I wonder what was going through Larry's head when they walked in, because he's got his... He must be losing of, his shit. Yeah, it's everything he would have wanted in the world before. He walks into a Vegas casino that's popping, and it's his song 
playing. The woman you of see, his dreams, well, she used to be. You see in his face when he initially walks in, it's not like he's happy, but you see him going through this emotional thing like, Jesus, whoa, that's my song. This is actually what I would have dreamt of. You before. have to wonder why Flag never came to Larry. Wouldn't Larry have been his perfect target? He did. In I the mean, beginning. like, really, him and Harold, you'd think. We saw him coming to Nick, offering Nick this ability to be his right-hand man, right? And Nick turns him down. And then he goes to someone like Lloyd. And you're like, I know that there were dreams sent to people like Harold and Larry. But why didn't he really make the push like he did with Nick? Because these two were way more on the fence than Nick ever was. Mm -hmm. And he could have, I mean, he got Harold without even doing that, mainly through Nadine. If he would have pushed that a little bit more, he could have had them. I'm not sure why he didn't. Well, he did offer Larry. He showed Vegas. He had the guitar. Mm -hmm. He could be a star. I'm wondering if he's going to make one last play with these. I would. Yeah. If I was him. Well, that wraps up our plot. But before we get to our dream reading, let's take a quick break to tell you about our Patreon. Patreon is our lifeline. Because we don't have a huge marketing department, we don't have a big company backing us, we don't really have ads. The only way we survive is through Patreon. And as a thank you for you guys helping us out in Patreon, we provide even more content. We give you coffee break episodes where we discuss mini spoiler-free reviews for the shows and movies we're watching and books that we're reading. And if you're not a Patreon member, you can go and take a look at that, coffeeclasscrew.com. Click on what we're watching. You can see our grades. We do a coffee rating. Then we have our bonus podcast where we go over, you know, um, during the holiday seasons, we'll tell you where Christmas came from, the original Christmas, how it started, New Year's. As a teaser, this month we're going to be doing random rankings and there will be some Stephen King stuff in there. And our movie reviews, where we just released Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And we give you a lot of behind the scenes. For example, some of those scenes with Daniel Radcliffe, he hates to watch because he was actually drunk while filming. Yeah, that and so much more we periodically come back to. At some point, we will finish the entire Harry Potter series, but we cover all genres over there. And no matter what tier you're at, you have a chance every month to win in one of our two monthly raffles for a free item of CKC gear. So head over to our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on the Patreon page to see more about the tiers, or just check out everything that we're doing. Right now is the golden age of podcasts, and it seems like you have an endless amount of podcasts that you can choose from, but that's going to be short-lived. In the past, where technology brings forth, uh, a couple of years ago was YouTube, and a lot of independent people would do YouTube clips and videos and People loved watching it. Those are almost completely gone because the amount of work that goes into it, if there's no way of sustaining a living, those go away. And the podcast era, we're right now in that peak. Two years from now, if creators like us don't find a way to sustain ourselves, we're going to be gone as well. So that's coffeeclatchcrew.com and click on Patreon. Okay, now on to our dream rating. On a scale of one to ten dreams, Jason, what do you give episode seven, The Walk? Well, as I said before, I think Vincenzo Natale did an amazing job with what he had. Visually, it was one of the most stunning episodes. It was probably the most character-driven episodes that we've gotten so far. The only times that it under-delivered was just because of the foundations weren't built. Mm -hmm. So... As a whole, I enjoyed this episode tremendously. For this episode, I'm going to go, I'm going to remain at an 8.3. I agree with everything you just said there. And if I could take this in a bottle and not look at everything else, it would be one of my more favorite episodes, just a little bit under the first. So I'm going to go up a tick. I gave last one 9.2. I'm going to give this a 9.3. 
Out of all the shows and movies we have reviewed, I am normally higher than you. At this point, we've graded seven episodes. You are going to be higher than me. Yeah, and I've been harsh on it because of the comparisons. But as I've mentioned several times, it's still one of my most favorite stories ever. And having waited so long just to get anything, I'm thrilled (laughs) to talk about it. Uh, The good and the bad, I am sensing that next episode, so many problems are culminating. I might not be as high, but... I'm definitely enjoying this. And as we move on to the Clatcher portion of the episode, I want to thank New Runner 12 for their fantastic five-star review on iTunes. And thanks to a screenshot and a tweet from one of our Clatchers, we got a review over on the UK iTunes. Thanks to Tanish Shelf Elvin, or her Twitter handle is a lot easier, at Laura's Mummy, for your rating and review. Thank you guys so much. It only helps us to get uh, more people to know about us. Now we move over to our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, where we ask our Clatchers, who is your MVS? Who made the most valuable stand? For episode seven, we gave you Nadine, Mother Abigail, Stu, and Flag. Coming in at last place with 8.3% is Mother Abigail. Understandably, we don't really know much about her. (laughs) Wasn't really impactful. She just walked away from us two episodes ago. We had to go save her. It is so lacking by comparison. However, should this be our last episode with Mother Abigail... It seems like it will be. We do at least get the big point to her taking this walk in the wilderness and coming back to our group in order to give them instruction on their main journey, the point of what God wants from them. Coming in third place with 12.5% is Stu. Stu starts off as the new leader of the group this episode, as she says. I do love the way he remains calm in the face of everything, comforting the rest of the group, even as his leg is broken and he's telling Larry to set it urging them to go on when that's clearly the last thing internally you would want to do. There must be every part of yourself crying out, no, stay and help me, please. Uh, Marsden killing it. He does take a stand in a sense here, but, you know, things end really bad for him. And second place with 16.7% is Flag with two Gs. Well, he's winning, or it seems like he's winning. But a lot more is going on. The facade is starting to be pulled. We're starting to see the man behind the curtain, and he is... Ugly looking. He's ugly looking inside and out. He's a user of people. He doesn't care about anybody. He's selfish. And scary. I love that they continue the fear factor that I mentioned was ramped up last time and I wish we'd gotten more of sooner, but I am genuinely now afraid of flag. But coming in first with 62.5% is Nadine. I'm, I'm frankly a little shocked at her being the winner of this episode. She does seem to have a little more choice and agency than the previous adaptations of opting to come to Flag. As we mentioned, less fear, less revulsion. Yes, she is afraid, and what happens to her is horrible and tragic. But the character seems a bit different this time around, choosing to become his queen. I suppose this is the Nadine Stand episode, if ever there was one. But let's see what the Clatchers had to say about it. Warren says, I think maybe I vote for Harold in his hour of demise for owning up to just being an evil prick. For me, this episode fell flat mainly for Nadine being a willing participant. There you go. Whereas the uncertainty, doubt, and trauma that the 94 Nadine endured had such a nauseating impact. Yeah, and I think Laura Sangiacomo did actually a really good job with that. I know a lot of people didn't love it, but I did. And I definitely toyed we both did having Harold on here. It was a tough call. What we ultimately did was the the leader of the evil, Flag, and his main disciple, Nadine, 
and the leader of the good Mother Abigail and her main person, at least up until the end of this episode, Stu. Linda says, I voted Mother Abigail because in her final moments, she fulfilled her purpose in leading them to theirs. Let me finish that. Leading them to their demise. (laughs) Just kidding. I see what you're saying. We finally got something, some kind of direction from Mother Abigail, albeit... We've been asking for that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean we have to like it, but there was something at least. Yeah, very true. And something's going to come up from this. Hillary says, I really wanted to vote for Kojak. I'm hoping that Good Boy is going to help Stu out of the valley of death. And Mike also with a write-in for Kojak. We were thinking about Kojak. We wanted to put him in, but we think there may be more for him to do. Yeah, and more opportunities to be on the poll. So, Jason, who is your MVS? You know what? I'm going to go Flag because, I mean, we know there's more to come, but at this point, Flag, uh, he got his two disciples or his two pawns, at least he thinks, kill some people in Boulder. And then he got his Nadine to come back to him, and he's making a evil spawn. Yeah. And so seemingly he's winning. He made the most valuable stand in this episode. I couldn't agree with you more. And while we don't want him to, I think that he and his side. Uh, I don't know about taking Harold out of the picture, but that's clearly what he wanted, and they did. Uh, he's got Nadine, got his, his double bomb. spawn. Yeah, and, and he's, he's got his he's bomb got coming. He's got his bomb. Too. I mean, he couldn't be more on top, except that he doesn't have that third spy, and I can't wait to go back to that. But yes, in the moment, it's it's flag all day today. We also got a write-in. This is about last episode that I wanted to mention from Harris, saying, I think I heard you say you haven't watched Under the Dome, and because you were talking about multiple Easter eggs and the King multiverse in general, I thought you would find it interesting that in Under the Dome, the very thing that basically caused it was a black egg with pink glowing rune-like symbols. Oh. Almost just like a slightly larger version of Flag's emblem that he gives to people. But in the Under the Dome book, it was a black-shaped box, not the egg-looking thing. So I guess that is a thing that ties into other areas too, which I didn't know. Now, we watched a little of the Under the Dome TV series. A couple of episodes. Uh, Never finished it. I don't remember it fully. And unfortunately, I have not read the book. We didn't have DVR back then. So we missed like one or two episodes and we were like, ah, oh, shit, how do we, it, yeah, it wasn't no, readily we available. It, but like, it wasn't like we were stuck on it and that yeah. kind of was the end. Uh, but I did enjoy the premise, so I would love to go back and read it at some point. We can rewatch it. Yeah, that could be fun. Also, greetings from Bosnia. Great to have a listener from Bosnia, wow, Harris. awesome. Thank you for listening. Hey, why don't you let your friends know? <laughs> And we can, uh, we can create our own boulder over there as well. Mm-hmm. And then you know what? No, we're going to bring everyone together. We're going to send them dreams. Yes. Podcast dreams. And if you get 100 listeners over in Bosnia, we'll, we'll walk there <laughs> with no food or water. How many miles is that, Jay? <laughs> like two. You must go with only the clothes <laughs> on your back. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, except for the spoiler section. So if you are afraid of that, we will see you when we review episode eight, the second to last Where did the time go? I can't believe this has gone so fast. Really enjoying it, though. Don't forget to check us out on Patreon. Go to our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com. See everything that we're doing there. And if you like what we're doing here, give us a rate and review over on iTunes or your podcast platform. So there's only two episodes left in the show, but there's actually six CKC episodes left. Oh, that's right. I'm so glad we've got book reviews to come after. I think I'd be way too sad. For those of you still here, we are in the spoiler section because I am in the way of knowing things. 
This time, we're going to look a little bit deeper at the meeting between Mother Abigail and Nadine that happened in Boulder. And we're going to do that by reading out a scene from the books. It's so lengthy and difficult to really explain, so I think it would be better if we just read it. And Jason, you and I will do that together. And when they filed through the gate, she thought, it's me they've come to see. And on the heels of that sin, a series of blasphemous metaphors rising unbidden into her mind. How they filed through one by one like communicants. Their young leader with his eyes cast down, a little boy behind him, with a dark-eyed woman whose black hair was shot through with a twist of gray. The woman looked at her gravely and unflinchingly. The boy's face showed frank wonder. Something about the woman made her feel cold. He's here, she thought. He's come in the shape of this woman. For behold, he comes in more forms than his own. The wolf, the crow, the snake. For one instant, she felt this strange woman would reach out, almost casually, and snap her neck. She fancied that the woman's face was gone, and she was looking into a hole in time and space, a hole from which two eyes, dark and damned, stared out at her. For Nadine, an almost swooning sense of revulsion and terror had come over her. The old woman could see, could see inside her to where the darkness was already planted and growing. All of their power is right here. She's all they've got, Nadine thought. The two of them, each with their own murky fears, looked at each other. They measured each other. The moment was short, but it seemed very long. Hello, she said in a thin, dead voice. I'm Nadine Cross. The old woman said, I know who you are. Do you? Nadine said softly. Suddenly it seemed that Joe was her protection, her only one. She moved the boy slowly in front of her like a hostage. This is Joe. Do you know him as well? I don't think Joe's his name any more than mine's Cassandra, she said. I don't think you're his mom. What's your name, chap? She asked the boy. The boy struggled as if a bone were caught in his throat. He won't tell you, Nadine said, and put a hand on his shoulder. He can't tell you. I don't think he... Joe threw it off, and that seemed to break the block. Leo, he said with sudden force and great clarity. Leo, Leo Rockway, that's me. And he sprang into Mother Abigail's arms, laughing. Nadine became virtually unnoticed as the crowd erupted in applause and Abby felt that some vital focus, some chance, was ebbing away. Joe, Nadine called. Her face was remote. Come away, Nadine said, looking unflinchingly at Abby. She's old. You'll hurt her. She's old and not very strong. Oh, I think I'm strong enough to love a chap like him for a bit, Mother said. Well, he's tired now, and you are too, from the look. Come on, Joe. I love her, the boy said, not moving. Nadine seemed to flinch at that. Her voice sharpened. Come away, Joe. That's not my name. Leo. Leo, that's my name. All right, Leo, or whatever you like. Just come away before you tire her more. He left Mother Abigail's arms, but reluctantly. Nadine's face was stony as they went back down the porch steps. The arms she had around his shoulders seemed more like a drag chain than a comfort. Mother Abigail watched them go, aware that she was losing focus again. With the woman's face out of sight, the sense of revelation began to grow fuzzy. She became unsure of what she had felt. The young man, Underwood, was standing at the base of the steps, his face like a thundercloud. Why were you like that? he asked the woman, but she paid no attention and went by him without a word. The boy looked at Underwood in a beseeching way, but the woman was in charge now, and the little boy let her bear him along. There was a moment of silence, and Abby suddenly felt at a loss to fill it. Although, it needed to be filled, didn't it? 
Wasn't it her job to fill it? And a voice asked softly, Is it? Is it your job? Is that why God has brought you here, to be the official greeter at the gates? I can't think. The woman was right. I am tired. What did it mean? What had happened here? I was sitting here complacently, waiting to be kowtowed to. And now that woman has come and something has happened and I'm losing what it was. But there was something about her, wasn't there? Then there was an instant of silence, and in it, they all seemed to be looking at her, waiting for her to prove herself, and she wasn't doing it. Another man approached her in hesitant, deferential fashion. Hi, Mother Abigail. The name's Mark Zellman from New York. I dreamed about you. And she was faced with a sudden choice that was clear-cut only for an instant in her groping mind. She could acknowledge this man's hello, banter with him a little to set him at his ease, and then go on to the next and the next, receiving their homage like new palm leaves. Or she could ignore him. She could follow the thread of her thought down into the depths of herself, searching for whatever it was the Lord meant her to know. The woman is... What? Did it matter? The woman was gone. And she went on to greet others. Later she says, and the feeling, fading now, it would be entirely gone by nightfall, was that she had missed something of great significance and might later be very sorry. I know that was super long, but there is no way for me to adequately describe this pivotal moment of everything coming to a head. Mother Abigail realizing that she's lost the focus, that she's not just the greeter here meant to make people feel at home. It's not even about starting up the society in Boulder. It's trying to figure out God's purpose or the the greater good and what some of the issues could be here. And this was a real red flag. Nadine was a problem. And had she recognized this sooner, maybe she could have done something about it. Who knows? Maybe she could have approached Nadine a little like that scene we saw where she talks to her by the piano about being Joe's mom. Mm -hmm. And yet she misses it. She loses the focus. She loses the purpose. And she lets it pass. So Nadine slips through her fingers. And she forgets what she's meant to do here because she is so proud to be the one. She is the prophet that's welcoming these people to Boulder. But wait a second, you're not? That's blasphemy. This is the sin of pride she was talking about. I still am by it. You don't feel it a lot more? She has all these people that made that trip. So she has to greet them all. Does she? They came to see her. But it's making her almost godlike. Well, maybe if she said, you know, remember, it's not me. I'm just Mother Abigail. It's God. Mm -hmm. It's not me. I'm just a person. Mm -hmm. But they still want to see her. They still want to see the person that they saw in their dreams. They want to, but that's not really what's important. She's not a detective. No, no, no. She's not. She's not supposed to take that second with a kid and and a woman. She's meant to hear God's message. And this is part of that. And she's no longer listening. So you're saying God right there was saying, uh, she's bad news? Yeah. Well, there's the part in there where the voice says to her, is it? Is that your job, mother? Is that why God brought you here to be the greeter at the gates? There's something telling her, you're getting off course, and there's something important here. Pay attention, and she doesn't. God should have just said, you're going off course. How much more clearly could he say it? This isn't your job. Pay attention. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's not difficult and tricksy, but I think it exemplifies this scene 
the struggle and the, the moment of opportunity and the things she's been getting along the way. There were other times, of course, of mother talking to God and hearing him. And it was so clear when she was at home in Nebraska. And now it's getting less and less clear. She gets more and more off that track. And this is just sort of the the final culminating moment. And it's after that and things go wrong that she decides to go off on her journey. So I don't feel like you get any of that in the adaptation. No, you don't. Like you said, it's just sort of, oh, she peaced out. Okay. But I would still argue that Mother Abigail's job is to make people feel welcomed once they get there. Why? Why not? God is saying to come here for your safety. No. That's what the people said. The people wanted to feel safe. They wanted a break. They wanted to rest. They talk about this. It's why they don't bring flag up at the meetings in the beginning, even though they know it's the most important thing and he's a real threat and they need to talk about it and what they're going to do because he's coming after them. Nobody wants to bring it up because they don't want to think about it anymore. They've been through so much. They just want to feel at home, like they can rebuild here. But that wasn't the point of coming to Boulder. The point was to go on further. This was a stopping point. It wasn't the end goal. Of course, you're the shepherd and you, you bring them here. You mm-hmm. should make them feel welcomed as they arrive. Are you going to welcome them and then tell them their purpose? Because then I'm about it. Well, she wasn't told their fucking purpose. She doesn't uh, even Then know. I'm about it if she <laughs> says, by the way, be at your ease, feel welcome, but know there's a job to be done here. Have know some people underneath you. She doesn't need to literally greet every okay. single person well, that all right. walks in. Let me give you the opposite. <laughs> Let me give you the opposite then. Uh-huh. Wait, Mother Abigail's not here to greet us? There's too many of us. Is she too important to talk to us? I thought she came to me in my dream. Is she too important to talk to me? No. So wouldn't that be the other thing? So Mother Abigail's like, no, I'm not going to greet anybody. I'm going to sit here in silence just in case God decides he wants to talk to me uh, any moment. That's the other extreme. I'm not suggesting she do that. She could still come every once in a while. That's why I said maybe have some people underneath you. Like if Ray is here in this adaptation, okay. just like seemingly chilling, doing nothing, um, who can sort of speak for her at times Mother when Abigail she... Mother Abigail welcomes you. When she what, though? And periodically she's there, does reflection, I don't know, a certain amount of time a day to pray whatever she was doing back at home in Nebraska that she's no longer doing now. Okay. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I, the main point, I think, this could be like a really long religious conversation, and I'm not even a religious person. I don't know how I'm winding up on this line, but I think that there's a subtlety that's been building, and of course, even this one scene doesn't give you all of that, but it's a good representation that we don't have in the TV series, and mm. I, I wish... I think you could have shortened that down to a 30-second meeting sure, yeah, in Boulder yeah. between them that also gives you some stuff with her and Larry and Joe that we were lacking. Yeah. Another thing I'm curious is when she met Harold. Mm. Did she say, oh, I don't, I don't know you? Yeah. Who are you? Who are you? I haven't spoken to you. There's so much good stuff, and maybe some of it was a result of time, but some of it I see definitive openings that we just didn't put it in. Difficult. Yeah, but how, yeah, that's one scene you're like, how do we, how do we angle that? And we've <laughs> had enough of Harold, but I think the Nadine thing we surely could have gotten. Anyway, I thought that was a fun, longer, closer look, and also just 
a bit of a whet your appetite, the book review, we're not going to sit there and just read out scenes like that. Uh, that would be fun if we could. We're going to be doing more reflecting, but talking about some bigger themes such as this, the spiritual aspects, the deeper character work. We'll talk some fun medical stuff about the super flu and other great tidbits. And for here, I hope that it just gives you a little more background on the Mother Abigail we're not getting to see. That's episode seven. Next time, we will have episode eight, The Stand, the second to the last before our coda. Directed again by Vincenzo Natale. I'm so happy to see what he does with that, but written this time by Ben Cavill and Taylor Elmore. I think this is going to be it. This is going to be the big action. And I don't know how much of that is in Vegas, how much of it is elsewhere, but we're going to have to get a little bit of all of that, I assume. Jason, anything that you need to have within the last two episodes? More Tom, mm. for sure. We're going to get more Trash Can Man. I was excited to see him. I, I, I'm not anymore, unfortunately. But hopefully there's some redemption this there. this better this time, but it was very brief, so I don't know how they deal with that next time. So that's the falling action in Vegas. The falling action with Stu. I need to see sufficient wrap-up there, but also... There's a whole bitch after that that goes on for quite a while. And if they just excise that all together and it's feeling like they might, I'm going to be really upset. So There's I a whole what? There's a whole bit. I thought you said bitch. No, bit. Oh, okay. Bit that I don't want to like go in depth with. Um, a sort of after journey. Well, I'm curious with, to see what uh, two characters. Stephen King does. Um, and yeah, well then the, the coda, but I don't know if that fits in with the new coda, meaning mm. if we don't get it next episode, we might not get it at all. Gotcha. Um, yeah, we'll have to see, but very excited for our final two. That'll do it for episode seven. And until next week, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash CKC podcast. This round is on me. 